If you are tuning in to our live feed stream, I want to thank you for being patient with us as we've been trying to wrestle with the tech issues we've had. I want to really just express my gratitude to our, our, our tech team and to the efforts and time that they have put in to making all these transitions possible. They have been so extremely flexible. I imagine there's a lot of stress and strain when all your brothers and sisters who you love so much are counting on you to get everything dialed in properly. And, and every week it seems like we have a new variable thrown at us. So I really appreciate the work that our guys are doing and, uh, and for the, uh, the great perseverance they've shown through the troubles and trials that we've had. So thank you, tech team. You are a blessing to us. And, and we're really, really blessed to have good, uh, good people um, in charge of, of those things. We uh, are in the book of 1 Corinthians, so if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Have you ever noticed that the silver lining of suffering, when society goes through a hardship and when there, there are troubled times that come upon a large group of people, that sometimes the silver lining is an unforeseen solidarity? When we went through 9-11, do you remember how that terrorist attack caused so many people for at least a short time to start to treat each other with kindness and consideration. People began to look out for each other. People began to have a sense of gratefulness for the nation that they live in again. When Hurricane Katrina ravaged uh, the southern and eastern coast of our country, uh, the amount of support and financial assistance that was poured into the Gulf Coast area was amazing. Even when we went through the Great Recession in 2008, I can remember people within the church and within the communities around me really looking out for each other and offering uh, support and, 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 and prayer during those difficult times. Each of those situations was tough, but it caused us to rally together to some degree, to look out for each other. And it gave us a sense that we were in it together. That's what makes the current season in life in America, I think, particularly hard for us to bear. Because we're getting the hardship and the trial part, but it doesn't seem like we have much of the solidarity part. In the nation that we live in right now, it feels like division is greater than it has been ever since I can remember. Uh, there is division about race. So very little trust from different ethnicities, but a tremendous amount of blame being thrown around for the unhappiness and the discomfort of others. Uh, there's problems and divisions with economics. People have been divided into essential and non-essential workers. Some people can go back to work. Some people cannot. Some people have been uh, laid off because of the difficulties and are struggling to get by. There are divisions of priority. People can't decide what matters the most. Is the virus the most important challenge that we have to tackle right now? Is the election the most important thing for us to be praying about and focused on? Is it the environment of the, the world that we live in? You can't rally behind a single cause because everyone has their own idea of what matters most to them. And then there's division over opportunities and freedoms. Are we really equal? Do we start off with disadvantages or privileges that make the playing field of life biased from the starting line? Are our freedoms being stripped from us through these different changes that our government is making in the, the uh, last several months? There are so many divisions that are plaguing the people and yet... It seems that we're more divided than ever. There isn't this sense of togetherness. So we struggle. And sadly, we do so without that sense of community, that sense of brotherhood that offers at least a slight consolation in times of tribulation. 
The book we've been studying together is a letter written to a church that in many ways was acting as though it were terminally divided. Divided over which one of the teachers among them was the best. Divided over how to deal with sin in the congregation. Divided over the specific ways that they were to worship God, particularly in the area concerning the Lord's Supper. But as Paul identifies and does combat against these divisions in his church, there is really one division that matters most to Paul. And it is the one division that should matter most to the Corinthians as well. We will see it clearly as we read today in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but in him is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, to understand this best, we must rely on the mind of Christ. We must thank the Lord for the Spirit. So let's take a moment and ask Him to guide us through this text. God, You for eternity have existed in utter and complete unity. Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know that You are a picture of love and fellowship, of brotherhood and support. Even though You are one God, the great mystery of Your character and person is that You exist eternally in three co-equal persons. And Father, we can't even dream of that kind of unity that you have experienced. Your will is perfectly united. Your plan is in absolute concert. You never disagree with yourself. You're in utter harmony and peace at all times. But that's not how human beings live. And so we come to you today, Lord God, with a heart that appeals for your guidance and your strength. Help us to know how we too might be unified under what really matters, Lord God, and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the new identity that we can have when we are called forward to trust in you and to follow you with our whole life. God, help us to see that the only solution to this disunity, it's not in politics, it's not in distribution of wealth, it is in your son Jesus who suffered and bled for our sin that we might be set free and have the one thing in common that matters more than anything else and that is the seal of the indwelling Holy Spirit. May your word, O Lord, break down these barriers that divide us. May it bring us to an understanding that what really matters is your Son. And I pray that you would bring this all about for the glory of your great name. And it is in your great name that we pray these things. Amen. So it's critically important that we understand what really divides mankind. And according to Paul here in chapter 2, the difference between people can be boiled down to one single issue. Every person can be classified in one of two camps. Either the natural man or the spiritual man. Now the natural man, we are told here in verse 14, rejects the things of the Spirit of God. What he sees of God from his natural point of view, they're not appealing to him. The things of God rather threaten him. And so he turns away from God in large part because he lacks personal understanding. With his worldly form of wisdom and knowledge, he cannot discern what is spiritually good for him. And so he runs away from God. The spiritual man or woman, however, 
has been granted a new way of looking at the world and specifically has been able by, made able by God's grace to understand God himself in such a way that he can see how wonderful God really is. The spiritual man has a spiritual discernment which dramatically changes the way that he will interact with God. In fact, it will lead to the change of that individual's entire being. This primary division, this most important thing that divides us, is not a new concept. Paul is really just expanding on the primary division that he has been alluding to throughout the first two chapters of this book. Thus far, he has used different words to describe the same concept. And so in verse 6 of chapter 2, Paul compared the man who is not mature to the man who is mature. This division we're able to see was not within the church of God. It's not describing some two-tiered system, if you recall, of mature Christians and then immature Christians. Rather, it was saying that if you are in Christ, you are mature. The word meaning complete. You have everything that you need to walk with the Lord God. You have the Word of God that you can now understand. You have the Spirit as your guide to bring you through. If you are a believer, you have a spiritual maturity that those who are not in Christ do not have and cannot gain through any kind of personal pursuit. In chapter 1, verse 18, Paul compared those who were perishing with those who are being saved. Apart from God's saving grace, every life is winding down to the end of a life of struggle. It is perishing day by day. Whereas those who are being saved by Jesus are being preserved and carried along through this journey of life towards a blessed eternity. One that will culminate in a new body. A body that is fit to enjoy the heavens and the earth that God will replace the current heavens and earth with. A body that will enjoy unity and closeness to God forever. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, Paul made us think about the difference between the man who is not in Christ on the one hand and how that compares to the man who is in Christ. This man who is in Christ is later in the same chapter described as one who believes in Jesus and His work. One who is called to trust in that work for his salvation. So this prime division has been on Paul's mind the whole way through chapter 1 and chapter 2 because everything that truly matters hinges on this important dividing quality. Whether you are not in Jesus Christ, whether you are not or whether you are makes all the difference in the world. And all these other distinguishing features flow out of that single significant marker that determines the remainder of our identity. And so here in the verses that we are focusing on today, whether or not you're in Christ will determine whether you are a natural man or a spiritual man. Look at verse 14 again. The word natural there in the Greek is psukikos. And psukikos is an interesting word. We have it translated here as natural. But if you go back to the, the, the real core of the word, what it means literally is soulish, of the soul, acting according to the essence of one's instinctive being. So the soul and the spirit are here thought of in two different ways. The soul is the living essence of the being, and the rules that define how that type of being functions are inherent with that soul. When Paul elsewhere describes someone as being dead in their sins, he's not saying that they lack a soul. Even before we find Christ, we have a soul, we have a being, 
we are physically alive and we have a functioning nature, but before we know Christ, we are spiritually dead. In other words, man who doesn't have Christ has no ability to know the things of God in any kind of a saving way, and it is impossible for them to please God with their actions. But in contrast, the Spirit is somewhat different here. The Spirit refers to the enduring vitality of being, that part which can have some kind of meaningful fellowship with God who is himself a spiritual being, right? Until a man or a woman becomes born again, until God raises them to spiritual life by His grace, their spirit remains dead. Not unhealthy, not injured, but dead. We can see how a couple other passages in the New Testament use a similar vocabulary to make this distinction between the spiritual man and the unspiritual man. Or the natural man, as it is called here in chapter 2, verse 14. Looking at Jude 19, Jude's a very small book near the end of the New Testament, which largely handles false prophets and being able to discern the difference between someone who teaches the Word of God and someone who teaches the thoughts and ideas of man. So speaking of false teachers, Jude writes, It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. The term for worldly here is that verse or that term that we just recently read out loud to you, sukikos. It is the same word for natural used here in 1 Corinthians 2.14. These false teachers were upsetting the truth by spreading lies and ideas and theologies that were in direct contradiction to the things that the apostles were teaching by the Spirit. They didn't have a real connection to God. They knew a spiritual kind of language so they could sound spiritual, they were faking as though they had authority from God, but these false teachers were there to twist and to deceive and to lead God's people astray. They spoke as if they had some kind of divine revelation from the Lord, but in reality they were still spiritually dead. And any kind of spirituality claim they have is actually an expression of their natural fallen self. Another example is in the chapter 3 of the New Testament book of James, where James, the brother of John, or the brother of Jesus, describes how worldly wisdom is different than godly wisdom. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like a theme we've been working on here through 1 Corinthians chapter 2? I guess that's something that we as believers need to know, right church? James 3.15 says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above. He's talking about godly wisdom comes from above. He says, the wisdom that you're depending on is earthly, it is unspiritual, and it is demonic. So he's admonishing the churches. For, for going to this earthly wisdom, this unspiritual wisdom that isn't from the Lord God, but is from darkness. Unspiritual there is the same word as natural that he uses in verse 14, meaning that it comes from the instincts and the tendencies of the human nature. It's not actually spiritual because only those who are regenerated and made alive have a spirit. All have a soul, but not all have a spirit with which to express themselves spiritually. So then it might be worth asking here, friends, and I'm sure this is probably something you've talked about with people before. What about those people who are not in Christ, who are not believers, and yet they would say, you know what, I'm not a religious person, I don't go to church, but I would count myself as a spiritual person. What do we do with that kind of a stance? When somebody says, I'm not religious, they might not even categorize themselves as Christian, but they call themselves spiritual. Typically, a person who describes himself in that way, who gives himself that title, 
is trying to communicate a few things about who they consider themselves to be. They are saying that they are open to the unknown. Those things which are not easily explained in science, because they consider themselves spiritual, they haven't totally written those things off yet. They might not speak with any kind of certainty about those things, but they like the idea of them. They are open to those concepts. They also are probably trying to let you know that they ask themselves a lot of introspective, uh, introspective questions. They, they're self-examining. They like to think about their emotions and their thoughts and their feelings a lot. They, they, they are concerned with their spiritual, their, their mental and emotional health. Also, those who call themselves spiritual often count themselves compassionate and empathetic towards others and open-hearted to people who believe differently than themselves. Now, from a biblical perspective, being spiritual is significantly different than that. It is not based on the choices that man makes about the way that he lives or his general attitudes towards religious responsibilities. It has nothing to do with yoga. It has nothing to do with crystals or an openness to radical philosophical ideas. Speaking from a strictly biblical definition, to be a spiritual man or woman means that a person has been made alive in a spiritual way by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's really the only way we can be spiritual when it comes to the Bible. That newness of spirit will result in some introspection, won't it? It'll make us examine ourselves. It will result in compassion and love for others. It will result in an openness to those things which are supernatural and are beyond worldly wisdom. But that will all flow out of a supernatural source. Those qualities will be of a supernatural quality to us. Not what man can muster on his own. They will be the literal fruit of the Spirit of God. These characteristics are the byproduct of a work that God has done in the heart not just the expression of one's individual personality. So you don't get these things from a guru or a retreat or a self-help podcast. You get them when God raises you from the spiritual death that has defined you up until this point in your life. And so if you trust the Bible, the only spiritual person is the person who's been brought to life by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Apart from Jesus Christ, people operate the only way they know how according to their limited human intellect, and according to the nature of their soul. Now, I want to acknowledge here that it is it's likely hard for a non-believer to hear that professed from a pulpit. I recognize here that, that it might be shocking to think of those around you as not being spiritual people who often consider themselves spiritual. I want to be sensitive to that fact, but I also want us all to realize here that offensive or not, this is what the Scripture tells us is true. God is the spiritual one. He rules the spiritual realm. He draws His chosen people into a new spiritual being. And there really is not an alternative spirituality to that. There's a growing desire for fallen man to count himself as spiritual, even though he wants nothing to do with God, who alone can provide person with a spirit. They want to be spiritual, but they don't want a nosy God trying to dictate the terms of their life journey for them. And that is why Eastern mysticism is so popular right now. That is why involvement in the occult and in witchcraft is so much more widespread than you might imagine it is. Because people want to be spiritual, but they don't want to deal with the only one who can give them spirit. They don't want Jesus. 
So to recap what we've learned so far in chapter 2 as we try to unpack what Paul is bringing to us here in these three verses, there is a natural wisdom and there is a spiritual wisdom. Spiritual wisdom can only be revealed by God. Natural wisdom is extremely limited and can never get to God no matter how hard it tries. There is a natural discernment. Man trying to decide for himself what is best. But then there is a better discernment, a spiritual discernment, what we learned about last week, that God can give to a redeemed person so that their eyes might be opened and then they might have the illumination of the Spirit to things that they used to be blind to. But Paul adds some nuance in the verses that he gives to to us today because in addition to spiritual discernment, a person made alive in Christ will exhibit spiritual judgment. Discernment, when it is granted by a loving God, must go beyond a mere mental evaluation or understanding of things. It should lead to actions that are impacted by right judgment. So in verse 15, the spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. We're going to spend the majority of our time this morning on that one verse here today. How is discernment different than judgment? Discernment speaks more to an awareness, to understanding, and to comprehension. I'm able to mentally figure things out and see the difference between what is right and what is wrong thanks to the discernment that God has given to me through the Spirit. But judgment speaks more to value. It speaks to how righteous and important a thing is to the heart. Understand, there is overlap between these two terms. Judgment and discernment are very closely linked. But the difference is significant enough here that Paul makes the distinction in this part of his letter. Many translations that you might be reading out of today, if you're not in the English Standard Version that we commonly use here, uh, you might have a different word than judgment there. And there's a reason for it. The Holman Christian Standard Bible uses the word evaluates. So the spiritual man evaluates. He doesn't judge necessarily, evaluates. The, The New American Standard Bible says that he appraises instead of judges. And I Those aren't wrong words. Those are good words, good translations, but I think they they might have been chosen because of how emotionally charged the word judge is, right? This word judge or judgment carries so much baggage with it. A lot of people feel very uncomfortable even saying the word because to judge is, by its own definition, to divide. More accurately, it is to handle the real division that exists whether you like to acknowledge it or not, and to do so in such a way that the nature of the division can be better understood. Ironically, this movement that's going around right now where people just don't want to use the word judge, they don't want to say judgment, they condemn the concept of judgment. But in order to condemn being judgmental, one has to do the very thing they are condemning, don't they? They have to render a judgment upon judgment. This speaks to the necessity of judgment, friends. It is not simply something that mean-spirited and prejudiced people do. Every human being has to exercise judgment. Judgment is something that everyone participates in, whether they want to admit it or not. And it is right to judge, so long as the judgment is rendered properly. If you're not convinced, think about it like this. We've come to worship a God today who is a king over kings, who is a savior, who is a creator, and who is also the judge of the universe. 
Is it wrong for God to judge? It is not. And so judgment itself is not intrinsically wrong. That's the difference, some people might say. God is perfect. He can judge, but we're not, so we can't. God doesn't make mistakes. And that's right, friends. When you start thinking in that, that way, in those terms, you're beginning to understand it. When man judges according to natural wisdom, he messes everything up. But when the solution is not put, um, the solution rather is not to just throw judgment out the, uh, out the window or, or to never judge anything. The solution is to seek the Lord's judgment on things, to, to recognize that those who believe in Christ have a spirit now that has been given a discernment which has enabled them to be able to make right judgments about what is good and holy, what is wretched and sinful, what we should draw near to and love, and that which we should reject and not allow to be a part of our lives. Before God revealed the truth to us and provided us with this spiritual discernment, we were unequipped to judge properly. And even when we have the Spirit, if we're not depending on the Spirit, we might still judge improperly. And a lot of people have been hurt by that kind of judgment, which lends to judgment having this very negative connotation. But friends, if you are a believer, things have changed for you. You don't have to judge from a broken and biased perspective anymore. You don't have to judge based off of your best idea of what is right and wrong. God has given you His holy word. And He has revealed to you in the pages of that scripture what is holy, what is right. He has given you a spiritual judgment that will benefit and bless not only you as you navigate through life, but others as you lovingly use that good judgment to help those who are in the dark to turn towards the light and to see what God is and what He has done. So to judge is to assess value to something. And that's why evaluate and assess or... or, or uh, uh, the word that the New American Standard used. It's not a bad, uh, a bad word, a bad translation. The gospel is not foolishness to the degree that the lost person cannot make out the sounds and grasp the words of what is written in the Bible. They can. They can open up and read it. Anyone can pick up a Bible and start reading through it. Many secular scholars who have a grasp on chapter and verse can even quote large portions of Scripture back to you. They can discuss the various theological systems that exist and their pros and cons. But what can they not do? What can the man in the university who doesn't trust, what can they not do? They cannot love the Word of God. They have not been given the ability to judge. Remember, the word judge means to assess something with value. They're not able to see how important it is, how beautiful and unique it is, how irreplaceable it is. They cannot love it. They cannot grieve over their sins that it reveals to them. They cannot plead for the intercession of Jesus Christ as they read the words unless God does a work inside of them. Because the whole idea of redemption and the way that God accomplishes it is foolishness to them. The natural man values many things. He values his freedom, he values his pleasure, his status, his power. And when the gospel plainly tells him that nothing that he values can hold a candle to Jesus Christ and his saving grace, they evaluate that statement and they say, nope, no thank you, wrong. I already have many things over here in my life that I love. And they choose the world. They judge Christ as foolish. 
when he is the very wisdom and power of God. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. He refuses to love this truth, which comes with boundaries and expectations. He doesn't understand them to the degree that they become precious to him. Now, if judgment is assigning value to a thing, then judgment, friends, is unavoidable. And not just the judgment of God. Yes, all people will be and are subject to the judgment of God. The denial of this reality has huge consequences for us. The sinful heart of man would like to pretend as though God's judgment is a fairy tale, and yet sin is judged, whether we like it or not, in a variety of ways. There are natural consequences to the judgments that God has laid plain to us in the Scripture. When I commit sin, often the ugliness of that sin is going to come back to bite me. If I lie to those who are close to me, guess what happens to my connections to those people? They begin to erode. They begin to fall apart and to decay. And soon the people that were near to me, thanks to my sin, now no longer want to have anything to do with me because they have identified me as a man who won't tell the truth, as a man who cannot be trusted. Sin has natural consequences. When we break the laws of our land, there are natural consequences to that. We can end up in jail. Our freedoms can be stripped away from us. It can cost us huge fines and penalties. Natural sin has natural consequences. But there are also relational consequences. When we sin and we break the commands of God, the relationship that we would like to have between us and God is severed and broken. Man under Adam, man apart from the Holy Spirit, has a relationship with God, but it is a relationship of hostility. It is a relationship of judgment. Because when we break the law of God, we show Him contempt. We show Him an utter lack of love and trust. We tell Him that we do not need Him. We'll be happy to take the life He has blessed us with and go and live it for our own glory instead of for His glory. And so the relationship that we might have with God is shattered because of sin apart from Christ. And sin has eternal consequences. Because offending God is such a massive, massive wrong, it must be judged harshly. One who commits even the smallest of sins deserves to spend an eternity paying for that sin because he has offended an eternal and infinitely beautiful God. So there are real consequences to sin. We will also, have, however, be judged by others every day of our lives. As we live in this world, judgment is all around us. How do I deal with the declaration made in verse 15 that says, He is Himself to be judged by no one. I don't have the power to keep others from judging me, do I? I don't have the power to keep you from having an opinion about who I am and what I stand for and what I say is right and wrong. No, I don't. But it is within my power as a redeemed individual to not allow your judgment of me to have unjustified authority over me. I am enabled by the Spirit as a believer to not let the opinion of the world define who I am or am not in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5. through We're going to get there in a couple months, so I'm not going to go too deep into this or else I'll ruin that sermon down the road. But listen to what Paul says here. This is how one should regard us. As servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards 
that they be found faithful. What is a steward supposed to do? A steward is an official servant who is tasked with some great responsibility. So a steward of God has been given something important that they've been entrusted with, that they need to look after. In this case, what they're talking about is the Word of God. The wisdom of God has been entrusted to us. His right judgment, given to us in the pages of Scripture, has been entrusted to the church. And we are to be found faithful with that judgment. Verse 3, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So the Apostle Paul here is declaring in just a couple more chapters as we make our way towards that expansion on wisdom and judgment. He's declaring that his judge is the Lord God alone and the Word of God. Now that does not mean that Paul, if he was in error, if a brother came to him and showed him the error of his ways, that he would reject it and say, you don't have any right to judge me. I'm judged only by God. Because if that believer was coming to Paul with the words of Scripture, guess who's actually judging Paul in that moment? The Scripture, right? It's not the man who is judging him. It is God who is judging him. How does God judge us? He judges us using the truths displayed in His Word. And so when the Apostle Peter who is also a man after God's heart, who is a man who wants to live righteously. When Peter falls into error, even though he's saved, he does the wrong thing and begins to treat certain types of believers less lovingly than he treats Jewish believers, then the Apostle Paul is willing to go to him, though Paul is not his judge, the Word of God is his judge. He goes to Peter and confronts him in it and says that he must turn from that activity because it's not befitting of one in Christ. How much will I value what another person decides to value? If I am led by the Spirit, then I will not allow a man's judgments to determine my course or sway me from fellowship with the Lord and following after Him. Because God is the one who alone has authority to judge every aspect of my being. So no person is to judge you based on their judgments, Christian. You are free from their judgments. More accurately, even more specifically here in 1 Corinthians 2, no lost person, not one who is not in Christ, can render a right judgment over you because they can't understand the core of who you are. Their value system is completely contrary to yours. You are new thanks to the mind of Christ that has been given to you and they are still what they were before. So this is a real and necessary division that occurs between all human beings that those who are in Christ cannot have the same kind of fellowship with those who are not in Christ. That doesn't mean you don't love the people outside of church. That doesn't mean that you scoff at unbelievers or you mock them. Far be it from the church that we should ever treat those outside of the church that way. There should still be a sincere affection and care for them. There should still be a consideration, especially for the, the fact that they are not near to the God that you love so well. But we cannot be absolutely united with those who are not united to us in Christ. So what happens when the church begins to let the values of the world define what the church values? What happens when godly men and women begin to listen to those voices that are pouring into the windows of the church and begins to fear that those outside will begin to so hate the people inside that they begin to scramble 
and they begin to change what they believe and what they stand for so that they might be loved and judged well, so that they might be valued by those who are not in Christ. What happens? We see a picture of this over and over again as we look at the great universities in America and really throughout the Western world. How many of you have heard of Princeton? Princeton is the fourth oldest higher education institution in America. The fourth oldest. It's been going on for a long time. 1746, Princeton was founded. It wasn't called Princeton at that time, but it shortly became uh, known as Princeton University once they moved their campus to Princeton, New Jersey. And it has for years and years been a gold standard of education in our country. But depending on what standard you're using, it's not the place it once was. Princeton was originally established to train up ministers to lead churches. That was the whole reason that Princeton came into existence. And for over a hundred years, it was faithful to that calling until worldly judgment began to displace godly judgment within the walls of that institution. There was a man named John Gresham Machen who was a professor of theology at Princeton. And he began to see the, the creep. He began to see this, this in, intrusion of liberal ideologies, of ideologies that were completely outside of the Scripture, but were beginning to become more and more valuable to the world around Princeton. He began to see that cre creep in and change the way that the professors were preaching the Word. And so he spoke up about it. And he began to challenge his fellow professors. He began to be so vocal about things, pointing people again and again back to the Word that the faculty that served alongside him were uncomfortable having him around anymore. It came to a head in 1929 where they decided and voted to disenfellow Mr. Machen and send him out of Princeton. Princeton left that university along with a number of other godly men who still wanted to hold to the church when it became clear that Princeton had no intentions of keeping the firm foundation of Scripture under their feet. And they established instead Westminster Theological Seminary, which is still a faithful seminary to this day. But you see what happens when the voices outside of Scripture begin to have more tug on the hearts of believers than the things that God gives to us. John 5.44 says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Friends, we, we cannot seek glory from one another. We must trust that the only kind of judgment that matters is the judgment that God gives to us through His Word. And sometimes that judgment will come through brothers and sisters in Christ. But that judgment must be rooted in the pages of Scripture if it is to have any weight with our heart. However, the spiritual person, and this is an interesting turn of events here in chapter 2, verse 15 of 1 Corinthians. The spiritual person judges all things. The spiritual person judges all things. The world says that we cannot judge one another. The world says, who are you to judge? You Christian who thinks you're up on a pedestal and who knows more than others. The basis behind that belief that no one is to judge one another is that no unregenerated person knows what is truly valuable. And so what is valuable must be relative. In other words, you've heard the phrase, one man's trash is another person's treasure, right? We all have different opinions about things. So how can we judge one another if each one of us is working off a different standard of righteousness? 
So do not judge, says the world. And then the natural man goes on to judge everyone anyways. Remember what we said at the beginning. Let's be intellectually honest here. Everyone uses judgment of one kind or another. So when those outside of the church point to Christians and say, those people are judgmental, what they're saying is, those people judge differently than I do, so I don't agree with them and I don't like them. This is a facade of freedom to choose for yourself. And it's founded on the idea that there is no transcendent truth, no ultimate standard for what is valuable and what is not valuable. But God's Word declares the opposite. He is the ultimate judge. Our assessments only matter so much as they matter and match to His perfect assessments. So we're going to go through here to to close the sermon out, and we're going to give some parameters to right and holy judgment. We as a people must be able to judge well. We must take the Word into our hearts and look at and evaluate the world around us and assign value to what God assigns value to. And so let's look to the Scripture for wisdom and guidance on that. Some would say your own Scripture prohibits you from judging. Well, what does the Word have to say about that? Matthew chapter 7, verses 1-5. through 5. Jesus, in the Sermon of the Mount, says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment that you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So many will point to the first words of that scripture and they will say, see, it's as plain as day. Jesus says, judge not. But the context of that that entire teaching must be looked at carefully. Judge not, why? Because apart from Christ, you too would deserve a great judgment. So speaking the truth must be done in consideration and love. And what is the true message of what Jesus is speaking there? Judgment cannot be only a projection that you put out onto others. Judgment according to the standard of God's word must begin with one's self. First, judge the self. Then, once the self is properly judged with humility... Move on to lovingly bring judgment into others' lives. Remember, judgment points out the true value of something. If someone is in sin, it is unloving not to point out the fact that that sin has destructive value, that it takes away from our nearness to the Lord God. It would, in fact, be hateful to allow someone to continue on in their sin and to not say anything about it, especially if they are believers in Jesus Christ. So judgment cannot be seen as an assault on someone else. It is always intended to be a help. So let's take the log out of our own eyes and then look to help our neighbor with the speck that may be caught in their eyes. Judgment begins in one's own heart. The second thing we see here is that any judgment we engage in must be governed by forgiveness and gentleness. This is spoken to us in Luke chapter 6, verses 37-38. through 38. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So what is, what is being said here? 
What are we being told in Luke chapter 6, verses 37 through 38? Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. It's not saying that we should just all let everybody do what they want to do. That we should just get rid of truth altogether and be so accepting that any kind of life, any style of life is acceptable and pleasing as long as it makes someone happy. That's not what Luke is saying here in chapter 6. He is saying that the way that we approach one another with the truth should be as loving and thoughtful as we would want someone else to approach us with the truth. Because the measure that you use of judgment will be measured back to you. Friends, you want judgment in your life. You want the right judgment of God spoken to you. You want someone to correct you from the error of your ways because if they do not, you will walk into destruction. Judgment is a loving thing to give to someone else as long as it is done in a helpful and loving way. What are the parameters for this judgment? Luke 12, verses 54 through 59 says, You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you do not know how to interpret the present time. And why do you not judge for yourself what is right? What are we told there? That we are to judge for ourselves what is right. Not based on our own wisdom, but with the scripture that God has revealed to us. That we should have right judgment about the world. That we should be discerning. And that discernment should work towards action in our lives. We're not to judge superficially. John 7, 24. Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgments. That means we cannot afford, friends to just make a quick, hasty assessment of a situation and then condemn somebody for what they're doing. Any judgment that we bring should be done in love to the degree that we dis- we're seeking one another in fellowship and friendship, that we're to come alongside a brother or sister and try to understand what they're going through and then try to see how God might use us to help them in whatever error they are stuck in. We are not to judge hypocritically according to Romans 2.1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We learn from Scripture that God's discipline is a loving alternative to the condemnation that we really deserve because of our sin. 1 Corinthians 11, 31-32 says, But if we judged ourselves truly, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So friends, as we evaluate our own eye and see the log that is in it and then diligently seek to remove that log by the help of the Spirit, then we will be under less judgment from others as we watch our lives and are careful about the things that we do. There is no room for us to be hypocritical judges who run around and point the finger at others while at the same time ignoring the error that exists in our own heart. And remember the words of 1 Corinthians 4, 1-5 that I mentioned briefly earlier, that we are a steward of this great spiritual blessing of the Scripture of God. Remember verse 3, it says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but am not thereby acquitted. Remember that even if you don't see sin in yourself, that there still needs to be examination of the heart, that we should still be seeking the truth within. Final judgment of a person's state should be reserved for the time, reserved for the final day of judgment. But mark this well, and this is interesting. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1-3, we learn that saints will judge the world. 
And we also learn that saints will judge angels. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 3. When one of you has a grievance against one another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? And so there is a sense here in which Christians should never have to go to court against one another if we all rely on the Word of God to be the right judge amongst our fellowship and community. That through the Word and arbitration with brothers and sisters that we trust, we can work out the problems that we have between another. But there's also that interesting mention there that when the final day of judgment comes, that those who have trusted in Christ and allowed that judgment to be upon their hearts, that they will then stand as not only sons and daughters of the King, but as joint heirs of His righteousness and holiness. That we will stand beside His throne and we will judge along with Him this world that will be condemned and put away forever so that a new heavens and a new earth can replace it. Even those angels that have fallen from heaven will receive judgment from those who are counted as sons and daughters from God. It's amazing what the Lord has in store for us. Things that we can't even fully comprehend yet. None of this judgment is possible unless the Lord gives us a new mind that can discern God's Word and love it properly. And so the last verse of our three that we're studying today, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. And Christian, if you call in the name of the Lord, that's talking about you. You have the mind of Christ. You've been, able, been made able to love what God loves and to reject what God rejects. Recognize the weight of this rule. You are to call sin and folly what it is. That's your stewardship as a Christian. And at the same time, you're to recognize that you were once worthy of judgment yourself before Christ took the weight of your sin onto His own shoulders and suffered for it. Your judgment of another person is always preliminary. That means that we've also always got to understand that, that God can change the heart of an individual, that God can work in a lost soul. He can redeem them and bring them into the light. So we don't condemn people to death. We try to show them the truth of the Scripture so that judgment might wake them up and the Spirit might help them to see that they need to turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. Consider how our ability to take this the, our ability to keep this sacred stewardship changes if, like that institution, Princeton, we become distracted. If the church of God turns away from the true judgment of Scripture and begins to think with worldly wisdom, with natural wisdom, like it did before. We're seeing that even now in uh, very close-to-home circles, friends. As many in the Southern Baptist Convention right now are beginning to listen to the words of the culture around them. Much of what we've been learning on Wednesday night has been wonderfully uh, illuminating. It's been helping us to understand the struggles that our culture is going through right now and how if we're not aware of it, then the language of the world and the philosophies of the world and the values of the world begin to displace our love for the Lord. And we don't want to see that happen, so pray for the Southern Baptist Convention as pastors across the nation are having to decide if they're going to let the world judge them or if they're going to maintain the one true judge in their life, and that being the Lord God Himself. If we walk away from Scripture, friends, if we stop valuing the things that God has revealed to us as the one true judgment that matters, 
then two things can possibly come from that. One, the church, devoid of God's word, will no longer be worth anything to society because it won't offer right judgments to the world. It won't be able to point them to the truth. It will no longer become a lighthouse. It will become darkness itself. The church, apart from the word, has lost all of its power for it has abandoned the transcendent truth of God that it claims to worship. So that could happen. The church could continue trying to be the church, but could do so deceived and derailed from God's plan. Or the church can continue to judge the world, but they will be judging it by their own earthly standards, by their version of worldly wisdom, and not by God's standards. And they will just say that that's God's standards. They will attribute their own ideas and philosophies to God Himself and try to commandeer people's reverence for the Lord and try to make them instead have reverence for their philosophies and their ideas. True revelation would become obscured and real justice will only come when the final judgment arrives. So those are the two possible errors that can happen when a church turns its back on the Word of God. But we can pray for better things for God's people. We began this morning by identifying the serious division that exists between the people in our society today. Being united as a people is a noble goal. But overcoming the things that cause division among us cannot be our number one priority. Of infinitely greater importance must be the division that naturally exists between man and his God. Because of sin, the natural man is a stranger to God and has cut himself off from the very source of all life and love and peace and joy. It is only through the work of Jesus Christ that we can first be reconciled to God, which then allows us to have a chance to be reconciled to one another. And so the one unity that matters more than any unity is the unity of God with man, and that only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul would eventually write in his second letter to the Corinthian church, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. When someone is reconciled to God, then we rejoice because that is best for them. And then we rejoice again because now that person who used to be estranged from the church as well can also experience true fellowship and unity with the people of God. Let's take a moment and pray as we conclude today's sermon. Lord God, we thank you we ask that you would put a longing in our heart for true unity, a unity that is established first and foremost when we die to ourselves and take up our cross and deny ourselves and, and follow after you as Lord. We, we are so grateful, Lord, that you do not leave us lost, but through the right judgment of your word, God, you reveal to us the error of our ways, that the gospel always will be preceded, the good news will always be preceded by the bad news of sin that we must come to understand that we are not all holy and righteous by nature, that we are broken and lost and in need of salvation. And so I pray, Lord God, that you'd be making that happen in the lives of those who do not yet know you. And I pray, Father, that you would guard your church, that you would guard our hearts and keep us from being proud as we apply the wonderful judgment of your word to the way that we live our lives, the ways that we try to help other people out. I pray, Lord God, that we would be quick to listen, that we would be humble and willing to receive judgment from others in so much as that judgment comes from your holy word. And I pray that you would also give us the courage to not be shaken when someone judges us as wrong, but they do so through a worldly standard. 
May your, God, may your church, God, cling to the word. And may we ever be guided by its illuminating light. We love you and thank you for all you've given to us in Jesus' name. Amen.